Hello and welcome to the Thriving Three Counties podcast with me, Dan Barker. Conversations with inspiring business people throughout the three counties of Herefordshire, Worcestershire and Gloucestershire. And now it's time for today's episode. I hope you enjoy the show. Okay, hello and welcome to this episode of the Thriving Three Counties podcast. I'm Dan Barker and I'm here in the studio with today's guest. With a career spanning over 30 years, he's firmly planted in the complementary worlds of business, technology and marketing. He's worked in diverse roles such as hardware and software engineering, product design, product management, product marketing, technology leadership and content creation. As a child, he was surrounded by entrepreneurs and sales professionals at home, with many of his childhood summers spent visiting trade show stands around the country, where he developed an ability to have insightful conversations with senior buyers. Throughout his career, he's been fortunate enough to work in highly complex worlds such as military radar, cryptographic communications design, and microelectronic design and manufacture. This granted him the opportunity to work globally and to interact with a wide variety of different business cultures. He's interviewed many senior business leaders across a diverse range of industries to help drive the creation of compelling content. He's now set up his own content creation studio, Hourglass Technology Storytellers, helping technology companies develop strategic marketing content and create new ways to communicate their products and services to their customer base. He has a deep sense of curiosity and has always struck me as being super sharp, both in appearance and the way he conducts conversations. He is Stuart Wilkes. Hello, Stuart. Hi, Dan. Thanks very much for inviting me along. No worries. Thanks for coming in um, on this uh, not quite very nice Friday, but uh, it's a bit blustery it's out there, right. but it's and, fine. Yeah, it's nice, to, but nice to be inside doing this anyway. Um, before we get started, you're at hourglass.inc. That's right, Inc. as in I N K. Yeah. Where do you get that um, domain from? What, what's what's the origins uh, of it? Is it? I think it was just one of those things that when I was setting up, what domain do I go for? And nowadays, the .coms, the .co.uk's, and everything are gone, but. Because we're focused actually on writing, it just seemed a natural fit to have yeah. ink as a as a sort of domain, really. Yeah, so, yeah. I, hadn't, I hadn't seen that one before. It's quite cool. Yeah. For, so, for what you did, did you grab the .coms and co.uk's as well? Or? Sadly, they'd all gone. Ah, right, you know, okay. um, and I'm one of these people. I've always liked domains that are sort of maybe just one word, quite okay. short domains right, and stuff okay, like yeah. that. You often see, you know, Bill's Plumbing Company of Malvern.com or something yeah. like that. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's too much to remember, so I just wanted something short. Hourglass.ink, yeah, I like it, I like it. Now, I wondered if it was like, because sometimes like the LY ones are like Libya or something, aren't yeah. they? And everyone grabbed those. I wondered if it, ink was from Not somewhere that I'm... or it's one of these ones that they introduced fairly recently, didn't they, where you can have like .studio and... Yeah, I... I don't think it's related to anything, any country or any any regime. It is yeah, yeah. just ink. It's cool, but yeah, it's another. It's one of those things you look at it and you go, "Ah, oh, that's cool." <laughs> thank you, thank you. <laughs> like your business card, by the way, which you gave me the other day. Oh, that's very I kind. It was very uh, nice, nice business card. All makes a difference, doesn't it? It does. Um, I mean, this is the second time I've sort of dipped my toe in setting up a business. Okay. Um, so I wanted to create a sort of brand that's going to sit with the um, potential clients and prospective mm-hmm. clients. Um, something that gives a sense of, we've got you covered, of of security, of reliability, of professionalism, mm-hmm. and what have you. Um, because what we do 
you know, as technology writers is it's actually not about us. It's mm -hmm. about the client. Mm -hmm. It's about their story. It's about what they're trying to say. To a degree, we almost want to appear transparent. So yeah. I didn't want to create a brand or a look that was all shouty and screamy or anything like that, mm -hmm. but just solid and reliable. So That's what it says on the tin, sort of thing. Very much so. Yeah, yeah, much. yeah, I like it. Where does the Hourglass name come from? Um, well, again, when I was looking for names, it sort of struck me that for years and years and years, people who have looked at technology, had looked at screens, always see a tiny little hourglass spinning round in front oh, okay. of them <laughs> and what have you. And of course, you know, hourglasses uh, are contained with sand, sand is silica, most technology is based on silicon and what have you. There was just a very loose connection <laughs> to the sort of technology. Yeah, um, yeah. What I have done is I've stayed away from just screen grabbing the sort of little hourglass logo oh, from Microsoft <laughs> and sticking it on the card. So yeah, it yeah. was just one of those names that just seemed to sit well, really. Yeah, yeah, nice, I like it, I like it. So um, you're based in... In Malvern. Malvern aren't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. I, I've lived in Malvern now for 25, 26 years, okay. something like that. Right. Okay. Um, it's a great place to live and work from. Yeah, yeah. You know, so yeah, there's really enjoy on. it. Yeah, and there is, and it's always been, um, there's been a lot of tech, um, you know, kicking around in Malvern. In fact, it was because of um, the forerunners to Kinetic, um, mm. when it was the Royal Signals and Radar Establishment, that's what brought me to Malvern. Right, okay. You know, it was my first job out of school. Um, right. I moved a, a great distance from um, Tewkesbury oh, right. um, to Malvern. So, yeah, my entire, my, my entire life, uh, as I've managed to move about 20 miles, really. Okay, so you grew up in Tewkesbury, did you? Yeah, I was born um, and brought up on the sort of Worcestershire-Gloucestershire border okay. in a sort of real rural village community. Right. It was one of those that it's either Midsummer Murders or the Vicar of Dibley, depending on, <laughs> on what you think. So I was surrounded by, you know, village hall, church fates, cricket matches, all of that kind of world. Yeah, yeah. Um, my, we lived just down the road from my grandparents' farm. Right, okay. So grew up surrounded by tractors, plows, implements, the whole, whole nine yards. And it was during that time I used to be fascinated, this curiosity about well, what does that implement do? Mm -hmm. Why have you got that? Right. Okay. And my grandfather was a, and my maternal grandfather was a real entrepreneur. He, um, you know, way back in the sort of 60s, he started automating processes, right. you know, for materials <laughs> handling. And if there wasn't a machine that did it, he'd make one. Right. You know, he yeah. built silos. He built things to go on the backs of trucks. He was just one of these people that constantly said, it can be better, we can improve this, we can change that. Yeah. So it was a terrific world to be sort of brought up in. But when you're a kid, you don't realize, you're just picking up on it's just your all norm, of this stuff. Isn't it? Yeah. And I was very fortunate as well that my father um, was working in, in agricultural sales. Right. So he would be selling equipment, you know, disc harrows, chain harrows, silage, you know, cutting devices mm -hmm. and what have you. So you were just surrounded by entrepreneurship, you know, sales of this equipment. Mm. Um, and it's like you said in the intro, during my childhood, every summer we seemed to be going to the Three Counties show, the Royal show, the Royal Welsh show, the show in Monmouth. <laughs> and you would go round 
hang on, I'd be going, what does that do? How does that work? What's right. that for? Yeah. And would come home, me and my two brothers, you'd come home with bags of brochures, leaflets, and all of that kind of stuff. So yeah. it, was a, it was a really, really lovely childhood doing nice. all of that sort of thing. So yeah, if you ever want me to point out the difference between a John Deere and a Massey Ferguson, I'm You're your the man. man. <laughs> Absolutely. Excellent. It's, um, yeah, there's something kind of like, I don't, I, what's the word I'm looking for? But you know, the, the, that kind of technology that you can see, you can see how it works, can't you? And yeah. there's no like, it's there and you can see what it does and then you can, I guess, see how to improve it and something that, Oh, it's quite appealing, isn't it? <laughs> it, it? It was fascinating. It really, really was. And it, and it would lead itself into you build your Lego models over it. or you had, yeah. um, We used to have little, um, I think they were called Britons, like farm machinery toys. How does this work? What does that do? Yeah. And it was just, but, but living in that rural community, you could really connect between the technology of the time, the, the equipment mm. and the result. You know, mm. you realize that they actually had to get this stuff harvested and dried and one mm. thing or another they had to do this so again you didn't realize it at the time but you were watching business processes yeah. to take place <laughs> yeah you know it was never explained as that it was just that's what they did yeah, yeah. so yeah i loved it Absolutely so was your it. dad a good salesman my dad yeah he was a very good salesman um but he wasn't trained as a salesman right he sort of he he originally um, was a um, electrician, okay. and then um, got into sales. But what he was very good at was just having a conversation. Mm -hmm. He would talk to people about what their needs were and help them find the right tool. Mm -hmm. You know, he had I don't want to say an old school professionalism, but you know, if that's what they wanted, he'd sell it to them. Right. You know, he would always follow up. He was always there on time. He mm. he had that sort of skill set that made him reliable trustworthy good to his word and and was very successful through it that's a that's a large part of just what you need isn't it to run a good business it, it is i mean i'm sure if i ever gave him um and he, he's a great reader if i ever gave him one of those sales books how to sell things you know to be the top <laughs> he'd probably look at it and just frown really <laughs> Um, but it was in amongst that, you see, we'd go and visit him, you'd, you'd see some of his customers, you'd see his opposite numbers at other businesses and what mm -hmm. have you. It was it was a lovely world to be in. Right, yeah, okay. So, so you're going around to these trade shows and things, sort of absorbing all this information, both the tech and also the, the business side of it, of how to, how to go and talk to people mm. that are, you know, potentially, I, I think when people... A lot of people start out with their business, they get quite intimidated by having to go and do that and, you know, pick up the phone and talk to people. I think I've, I've definitely suffered with it, probably getting better now. Yeah, but, um, I think it's, um, you have to be curious mm. and I think you have to be selfless as well. Mm -hmm. um, and if you can have those two qualities, people are quite willing to talk to you. Mm -hmm. um, and again, I think, also be willing to ask the stupid questions, the naive questions. We haven't all got the answers. Mm. So again, in my childhood, I'd be constantly asking why. Yeah. Now, strangely enough, during my schooling, it used to get me into trouble. You'd be seen as disruptive because you were yeah. questioning. Of course, here we are, you know, another generation <laughs> forward and they want you to question, they want you to be disruptive <laughs> and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, 
I think starting a business, go out and talk to people with what your idea is, what your concept is, what you're thinking of doing, and see what the response is. Mm. And mm. if somebody says, I don't like it, don't take it personally, mm. understand what they've actually said, critique it yourself, and then move forward. Mm-hmm. So uh, you, ha- you had a happy childhood by the sound of it. Yeah. What, what, where did your sort of interest take you at school and that side of things? Well, school was, you know, a little country school, and then I went on to, you know, uh, uh, a, a high school, a junior high school in Upton upon Seven that sadly now has been pulled down. Mm-hmm. But I was always interested in sort of maths and geometry and technical drawing and woodwork and metalwork, that sort of technology side of it, really. Yeah. Um, and I was again really fortunate that I happened to be at school just as we were getting the sort of microcomputer home computer boom right, of the okay. sort of mid to mid 1980s right and i remember this, that you know from that period there were two people that massively influenced me mm. one was my mate a chap called matthew provins and right. we used to hang out a little bit at school and he lived in tewkesbury and because we both went to school in upton we were the only kind of two kids from that area and I went round to Matthew's house and he showed me a Commodore VIC-20 computer. Right. <laughs> and it was like, look at this, I've got this computer. And he started to demonstrate it to me. And I was just like, I'm in the future now. <laughs> this is phenomenal. It was just one of those moments where the penny really, really dropped. We programmed it. He showed me how to load programs. We played Jetpack on it. And I was just like, I've got to get one of these. What, what's this all about? Absolutely fantastic. <laughs> so he set me thinking about there are these devices out there that we would now call single-use devices, you know, tractors, plows, whatever. They are really do one thing. Mm. But this computer, just by putting different instruction sets in it, became something different. It transformed. Right, okay, okay. So you turned around and you went, so I can do graphics, I could do music, I can do mathematics, I can do writing, I could, all on this one machine. This concept of almost a universal machine, you know, there I was a you know, tiny little teenager, just blew me away. Right, okay. From that, the other influence, I had a sort of amazing maths teacher um, called Mr. Chiba, and he started a computer club at right. school. This school had been granted, you know, their sort of plethora of BBC microcomputers started this computer club so joined up it was lunch times and you started programming and from that point on it was like right my lego sets went into the wardrobe (laughs) it was like like i said i've got to get myself one of these um and i pestered my parents i pestered them like mad i want a computer what do you want a computer for what are you going to do with it i don't know until i've got it but it does these amazing things and my mum relented to a degree and she, uh, I'd seen on TV, there was these, you know, week by week part work magazines. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, you get one part each week and it's, you add it to the thing yeah. and eventually. And it was either they turn into a big pile of magazines or you actually read them. <laughs> and there was this one and it was called the Home Computer Course. Right. And, and I brought it along there, actually. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it was just full of computing of the day. Right, okay. And mum said, Okay, I'll get you that. 
So I was reading about computing, I was reading about programming, I was reading about logic circuits and all of this sort of thing, long before I had a computer. Yeah. And all this did is it just fascinated me even more. Right. Okay. And it would even go into like here, like the pioneers of computing, and it would give you a brief biography of these names of people, you know, Sinclair, you know, the guys at Atari, the guys at Acorn, mm. Jobs and Wozniak at Apple, all these people. I was like, this is an amazing world. <laughs> so... I could take this along to computer club and I could yeah. start programming. Okay. Um, at home, didn't have a computer. So I learned to type on my mum's typewriter because I thought I need right. that skill set ah, okay. and what have you. So I've still yeah. got her imperial typewriter in my, in my <laughs> office at home. And then fortunately, I was incredibly fortunate that it was around Christmas 84. Woke up Christmas day. There was a Sinclair ZX oh, Spectrum wow. Plus <laughs> waiting for me. And apparently my dad didn't know mum had spent all this money on buying a computer <laughs> until Christmas Day morning. But that was it. From yeah. that moment on, I, I just, in fact, again, I brought that along. There I am. Um, oh, excellent. Got a photo. Yeah, with it. You won't be able to see this, but uh, there it is. <laughs> yeah. And, excellent. And my world changed. <laughs> yeah. It, it really, really did. Yeah. Um, and from that point on, I just couldn't leave it alone. And it wasn't just from the game's point of view, but what I learned was this little piece of equipment augmented my skill set. Right. I could now do things that I couldn't do beforehand. Okay, so it was sort of felt like an extension of your abilities, like almost an extension of your arm and brain. and uh, uh, Absolutely. Things. Yeah. And the more I learned about it, the more I wanted to learn about it. Right. And you'd read in the magazines, you know, I can accessorize this. I can get a game controller. I've got to get a cassette player. I need to actually get some blank cassettes. Um, I need to get a color monitor. So <laughs> I had a paper round. Yeah. So I was, and I used to mow lawns in the village for various people to earn money to go, I need to go and accessorize this computer, these, these right, other bits yeah. and bobs. You know, and the highlight of the month used to be if I'd go and buy, you know, Sinclair user. Right. <laughs> um, and that one um, I bought, it was the first one I ever bought in Paddington yeah. train station, Christmas 1984, just before I got my first computer. Right, okay. And what I loved about them, the magazines at the time, is they would talk about games, they would talk about business, they would talk about programming, they would talk about mm. peripherals. It was the entire world. They hadn't segmented it up into business users and home users mm. or gamers or hobbyists and what have you. And, you know, as we all know, there was no internet then. So yeah. you could just immerse your world into it. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, I would deliver newspapers, mow lawns to get the cash just to keep investing in this newfound hobby of mine. Right. Okay. Okay. And, um, I mean, what sort of things were you doing with it then? Like, kind of, aside from... Gaming and things, I guess. So I learned rudimentary animation. Right. You know, building sprites that you could then move across the screen. Um, I would actually learn, there was a little application called VU3D, so you could do very rudimentary sort of 3D perspectives. Right. Um, I had a word processor. Mm -hmm. So I started actually doing, actually what I used to do is I, on my word processor, I would type out little flyers, stick them to the front of the newspapers I was delivering. Right to upsell my customers that there's a calendar coming out from the newspaper company. Do oh, you want really? to buy the calendar? <laughs> so I used to use it wherever I, wherever I could, actually. 
um, okay. across the board. So this is sort of your your dad's business, selling influence, I, coming in well, at well, a young age. And, well, I didn't realise it at the time. Yeah, it yeah. just made sense to me. Yeah. Because the newspaper company, um, the Gloucestershire Echo, would say, we've got this supplement or we've got this chargeable it used to be calendars they used to sell yeah tell your customers and i thought but i just pushed the newspaper through the letterbox <laughs> i don't see them so it was just a way to let them know but of course they would say well the calendar is 5.99 to your customers but we'll only charge you 3.99 so yeah. you make two pounds on this i was like hang on a minute i've, I've got 30 customers here yeah so I just started to use the computer because I couldn't type out on my mum's typewriter. I wasn't going to type out 30 flyers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So to be able to write one and then my little Alphacom printer would <laughs> churn them all out. <laughs> I was just like, this is, this is me. I was, I was away with it. Yeah, so you're kind of like bringing in your, your grandfather's like um, curiosity for improving the efficiency of things and... Uh, it sounds like to me because you kind it, of. Uh... I think it was one of these things. It just made sense. Yeah, yeah. You know, I can I can sort of nostalgically look back and go, oh, it was this, it was that, but at the time it just made it sense. Just made sense, and you're interested in it. Cool. So, so you know, I I even at one point because um, I'd done a bit of you know um, piano lessons mm-hmm. as a kid. Um, even hooked it up through MIDI to a small synthesizer I'd bought. Right. And there was this Spectrum doing a, you know, a, a four-track backing track. And to see <laughs> one machine controlling another machine was just, was just genius. And from that, um, I had a cousin at the time who was working in... Um, he used to volunteer for hospital radio in Bristol. Right. So I actually did some radio jingles for him. Okay. <laughs> but it was just what can I use this for? Yeah, I was yeah, yeah. constantly searching for these use cases and okay, it was, it was fantastic. Nice, okay. So uh, where, where, where did you go then after school? What was your sort of uh, route at that point? So I'd, I'd gone through school. I was the first year to go through and do GCSEs mm. and what have you. And at the time it was like, where's this brave new world of tech and what have you. And through the careers um, teacher, I was told about this place. It's called RSRE in Malvern, okay. which was the Royal Signals and Radar Establishment, which has morphed and changed and is now kinetic. Mm-hmm. And they had this apprenticeship scheme. It lasted four years. Right. And I applied, and they went through interviews and all sorts of things. And there I was, 16 years old, and was offered a place. Oh, right, okay. And That's they had a intake there was only probably about a dozen of us were taken on every year mm. and a lot of them i still see in contact and are friends with and often have coffee actually with one of them and we yeah. reminisce and i joined this apprenticeship scheme mm-hmm. and it was in the discipline of electronic engineering okay and i mean it was so comprehensive yeah we learnt soldering we learnt cable harness um, development. We learned enclosure design, circuit design, logic design, programming, testing and measurements and all sorts of things. We had two years in this training center, just week by week, it'd be a theory and a practical, a theory and a practical. Um, And okay, you were teenagers at the time, so you thought it was a bit tedious or one thing or another, (laughs) but it it was amazing. Yeah. You know, um, 
after the two years in the training centre, which is actually now part of the science park. Okay. That's where we were all located. Right. After two years in the training centre, you'd go onto the main um, site mm-hmm. and you would tour around all these different departments. So you'd go off into you know, the workshop where they'd be doing low volume production. You'd go into the drawing office and learn circuit design on CAD machines. You'd go into the circuit manufacturing place. You'd go into the silicon development. You'd go into the sort of trials area. So you were just immersed in this world for another two years. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I don't know what apprenticeship schemes are like nowadays, but I don't think they are as in depth or as deep or as rich Mm. as what I was fortunate to go on. Yeah, yeah, sounds it, sounds absolutely ideal for <laughs> where you were and what you wanted. Well, it, what you were interested in at that stage. It was, but perhaps as well, you know, you're, you're always asking why. Why are we doing this? What's mm. this a part of? Just get on and do the job. But why? What does this mean? <laughs> so I, I'm not sure again whether my curiosity got me into sort of not trouble, but just a bit. Just get on and do it. Right. But I kind of wanted to know where the application of this technology would be mm. to try and join those dots really yeah i know what you mean i think i think uh, i've had similar struggles like when i was you know i think even at uni doing engineering and mm-hmm. you'd learn sort of this theory stuff and you know you could solve a problem that they gave you but it was kind of well how does that relate to anything in the real world i didn't really quite get that and that, that sort of quenches your not quenches but it, it suppresses your your enthusiasm a little bit doesn't it 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 does because you have that naivety enthusiasm whatever you know you wanted to understand Mm. really Mm. um there's no doubt about it i'd I'd never become one of those people who could just do a monotonous task day in Mm. day out and i've almost got a strange admiration for people who on a friday would finish work and disappear. I was constantly thinking and more questions and more curiosity. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and while I was, while I was in amongst this apprenticeship scheme, and and then subsequently as we finished, I found a niche in doing circuit board design. Okay. Um, and it was just at as, at the start of CAD systems were coming out, and you know engineers would do the logic design, but then you had to transfer it to make something physical. Mm-hmm. And having to lay out all of these tracks with certain constraints, you know, on the top side, the bottom side, where does the power go to make sure it's shielded? It suddenly became this hugely complex engineering problem right. that you could solve using CAD systems. Right, okay. During the apprenticeship, we were taught how to do this, but they were on, that, that it was manual. You use something called Brady tape to actually um, lay it all out. But I found this niche doing circuit board design and just loved it. Yeah. It was like an incredibly complex puzzle that you could do and you could check and then you could run it through the CAD systems to make sure it met the criteria. Then you'd actually design it so it could be manufactured. And you started seeing now the application of all of this technology. Mm-hmm. Um, and getting into circuit design or circuit board design was, was just fantastic i loved right. it yeah yeah okay so that um it's uh it's always interesting to me people are so good at following what they were interested in at such a young age like i know it sounds a bit silly because you kind of it's what you do but 
I, I don't know. It sounds like you had a really strong sense of what you loved and you were like, oh, that's what I'm going to do. And then also your mum really supported you by buying you that computer and, and, oh. and everything and, and the magazine and could see that that's obviously where your interest was and it's so important, isn't it? Oh, oh absolutely. If you get that, get that support to do what you just naturally enjoy. Yeah. It was terrific. Um, but it, it didn't feel pushed or strained. It just felt you were heading in the right direction. You're in the flow sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, which, which you hear about, you know, people want to learn where their flow is, what their purpose is and what have you. And at that time, it was just, this feels really, really lovely. Yeah. I, I've said it a couple of times, but it felt like I was living in the future. Yeah. It, it really, really <laughs> did, you know. Um, so I pushed on at, um, uh, at RSRE, as it was called, but it started to change. Right. Um, and it, it became the Defence Research Agency. And what have you. And now, this was around the time that the government at the time believed in privatisation. Mm-hmm. And now, you know, these old big civil service institutions needed to show a profit or they need to have an internal market. And one thing that... So these long-term research projects were all starting to be canned. A lot of the design, a lot of the manufacturing that they would do on site well, we can now outsource it. We can do it over here. Mm-hmm. So just as you felt like you were starting your career, and, and bearing in mind, you know, this was the sort of probably the last days of become an apprentice and you'll have a job for life. Yeah. Just as you were getting into that politically, operationally, managerially, it changed. And right, a lot yeah. of us moved on. We took right. this amazing training and disappeared, disappeared. To, to other companies. Yeah. And what have you? So, yeah, it was in the sort of early nineties. I right. I came out of there and, and moved on. Right. Okay. You know. Where Where did you head next? I'm just going to move your mic. Can you just pull your mic a little bit closer to? Because it's uh, yeah. maybe able to hear it raining quite heavily it's, in the background. There's quite a storm brewing out there. I'm glad I brought my brolly, Really. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's proper uh, proper wet. I'll just turn that down a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. So, so uh, what, yeah, what was your next move then? From uh, so I came out of there and actually got a job with, bizarrely enough a government contractor. Right. Um, I, I worked for one and then worked for a second one. And the second one was called Serco. Okay. Um, they do a lot of facilities management. But at the time, they were based down in Gloucester and they were providing a service to GCHQ for development of new comms equipment. Okay. And I went to work there in the drawing office mm-hmm. um, designing circuit boards right. and what have you um, with a, an amazing CAD system from a yeah. company called, a, a wonderful company called Zukan, a Japanese software company. And there I was, huge, great screens at the time, you know, <laughs> this a massively what I thought then was a powerful computer, you know, a sort of, you know, Windows machine designing circuit boards. Right, um, yeah. And we, we got into design, I mean, products. You know, this one here, actually, that I've, again, I keep the brochures. It was, it was a, a, a device for helping the um, people inside of GCHQ have secure communications. Right, okay. okay. You know, you've seen it on the TV when they say, let's go secure and press a button. Yeah. And that was one of the That's devices that, that did it. Okay, gotcha. And interestingly <laughs> enough, actually, um, through a friend of mine um, over in Cheltenham Reed, Reed Darby, mm-hmm. um, talking to him inside of GCHQ, they have a small museum 
right. of technology, past and present. And he reassures me that what I designed there is now in the GCHQ <laughs> Museum. So, you know, if I achieve nothing else, I know I've designed a, a museum <laughs> piece. So, yeah, I, I got into the government contractor for a few years. Mm-hmm. But my, you know, the interest in the CAD system, what it could do, what it couldn't do, how to mm. improve it. Um, like I mentioned, this company called Zukan, I then moved to become what was called an application engineer, a sort mm-hmm. of product expert on the product I'd been using. Right. Okay. So I moved from designing circuit boards to now helping design the software that would design circuit boards. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So I, I moved on to them and um, became product manager for this wonderful product that still exists today um, called CADSTAR. Mm-hmm. And they were, again, I didn't realize it at the time, the influence that company had on me was phenomenal. Mm. Right. Because now, instead of just working in Gloucestershire and Worcestershire, they said, well, you're an applications engineer, we need to, you to go and do this trade show so you can demonstrate this software on the trade show stand. Great, where's this <laughs> trade show? Oh, it's in San Francisco. <laughs> what? And it was like, yeah, here's your ticket. Go and meet everybody else and did it. So you started traveling now. Right, um, yeah. And Zukan at the time had an office in Silicon Valley. Right. And here I was, you know, late 20s, finding myself now right in the heart of Silicon Valley. These places that I'd read about. Yeah. These companies that I'd read about and what have you, demonstrating this software. And we would then do other trade shows. We would do user group meetings and stuff. So for a few years, I was disappearing over to Silicon Valley, it seemed, so regularly. Right, okay. And it was just phenomenal. What type, what, 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 uh, when roughly was this? So this was the late 90s into the early 2000s. Yeah. So, um, so again, I was, I was sort of in and out of Silicon Valley during mm-hmm. the dot-com boom and bust. Wow. And what have you, <laughs> which was a fascinating time. And, yeah. you know, I would pick up the magazines at the time over there and read about it. You know, Fast Company, Red Herring Magazine, Business 2.0, Wired Magazine. Yeah. And just this love of the Silicon Valley dream and culture was just embedded in me. Right. And, and it was daft, you know, you'd finish work in the office and some of the other guys would, oh, we're going out for dinner. And it's like, I'll see you tomorrow. I would. I wanted to go and see Apple. I'd want to go and see <laughs> Silicon Graphics. Opposite the office was the headquarters of Intel. Right. <laughs> and it was like, I've got 10 days here. I need to go and see this. I'd go and see the HP garage where they were formed. I'd go and attend seminars at Stanford University that were free. Right, okay. And it, it just, it felt like you'd suddenly, despite having a love of technology, it now felt I'd found my tribe. I'd mm-hmm. found this group of people that were creative, that were entrepreneurial, that were tech savvy. Because mm-hmm. again, I mean, way back then, if you were in tech, it was the days of the constant upgrades, all the geek and all of that kind of stuff. But you'd go to the other side of, you know, go to California. But these were business entrepreneurs. These were people who were pushing things forward. So for a few years doing that was was absolutely fantastic. Yeah, yeah. And, it, yeah. and, it, and in fact, I was, you know, being the Apple fanboy I was, I ended up <laughs> outside of Apple's HQ. Excellent. Um, and, and, and just loved it. But what I found while I was there, it wasn't necessarily the place. It was the attitude. 
Right. Okay. In what way? That engineers can become entrepreneurs, technologists right. can become business people. Okay. That asking why, being curious, was actually a really good trait to have. Right. Where it doesn't always have to be this way. There is going to be something else coming. We need to push forward. We need to develop. We need to, you know, think out of the box and all of that. Mm. So you come home just absolutely full of this sort of like can-do spirit mm -hmm. and attitude. Mm -hmm. And even though, you know, people say, oh, Silicon Valley's had its day, it's an amazing microcosm of change. Mm -hmm. You know, it was hardware-based, you know, around when they developed transistors and what have you. It became software-based with OSs and, well, hardware-based mm. led into, you know, the Mac and um, desktop computers. It moved into software. From software, it's actually gone to web. We've gone into apps. We've gone into mobile. Yeah, so Silicon yeah. Valley, even though people, well, we're going to be the Silicon Valley of gaming or this, mm. the real place continues to evolve and merge, and that entrepreneurial mindset is still there. Still there. All right, yeah, you know? yeah. So, so it was a fantastic time. Really, really fantastic so, time. Uh, so you mentioned that Hourglass is your second business yeah at what point did you dip your toes in the first time then so i was working for zucan doing yeah. the software product um i was then headhunted to go and work for a competitor that was actually based in toronto right in canada okay now at that time i was married had a young family mm. and trying to go working in canada come home now and again mm. shall we move wholesale and everything yeah 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 we we couldn't make it work yeah um, so it was the, the right decision to say i need to need to be back home yeah yeah so came back home and it was that first point in your career where you went well what shall i do now right um so i actually started a small consultancy business right because i'd had a alongside all the tech i'd had this strong interest in in apple in that apple technology mm. so small started a small consultancy firm um, because at the time, Apple had done this migration. They were going from an old operating system, OS 9, to OS 10. And there was this opportunity to help businesses of a certain size mm -hmm. with a planned migration. Okay. So right. I set up this consultancy business primarily to help people migrate from one OS to another. Okay. Because would the hardware run? Did they need to upgrade the hardware? Did they need more RAM? What about the applications? Was there a native version or would you have to emulate it? Would your peripherals work? So there was a whole right. pre-planning project management piece. So I set up a small consultancy and started doing that. Mm -hmm. um, okay. And it was fascinating. I got to work inside a lot of interesting companies. Yeah. Um, worked a lot in education, you know, schools and colleges and, you know, creative universities and people like that. And yeah, we did that for about sort of eight or nine years. And so, so how was that when you first, you know, got started with that? You obviously had to go out and build the business and start talking to people. But I'm guessing your, you know, childhood experiences probably came into play here. And uh, it, it was very much a case of well, actually, who's going to have a large installation of of, of Max? Right. Um, and you would identify. You would go through phone books at the time or yellow yeah. pages or rudimentary Google searches. And I would actually just write to them, call yeah, them. Yeah. And what I did is on the, on our little businesses website, I started actually, that's where I started doing some writing. 
Right, okay. I'd write articles. I mean, nowadays you might glorify it and call it thought leadership, but how does this work? What does this mean? You know, what Apple technology is coming down the pipe? All okay, of these sort yeah. of things I had. So I would put this essentially blog out there. When was this? So this was around 2001, 2002. Okay. That seems quite uh, ahead of your time. So, well, I don't know, but... <laughs> But then what I would do is you would go, right, well, I can write this. I need to get some exposure. Mm. So the magazines that I'd, I'd learned to love, I'd write to them and say, I'm doing all this writing. Do you want any of it? Right, okay. okay. Because I know even back then, magazines were short of content. Mm. But if I give you the content for free, can I reference it? So I struck up a deal with a couple of magazines, okay. which almost gave me a bit of credibility for the business mm -hmm. that you could now go well these people think i know what i'm talking about can i come <laughs> and help you with your migration project yeah yeah so it sort of went from there really okay got a few clients and then through my relationship especially with um with mac world magazine um i then thought i want to go back to silicon valley mm -hmm. i then applied to speak at their conferences right okay so then you would go well, we're doing all of this transition work. We're doing professional services. We're helping you with this. Right, if I can go and get a couple of speaking gigs mm. at, a, at a decent conference, mm. I can use that to continue to build the credibility. Gotcha. Okay. So I got on the Macworld faculty and for, I think, three or four years, would go out and talk about... Apple had a strategy at the time. They called it the digital hub. Mm. And it was like, how do you apply that to business? Mm. How can you use Apple pushed into the enterprise market, they brought out servers and raid units and stuff. And it's like, what does these servers mean to your business? How can you actually now start considering identity management, backups and all of this kind of stuff in an enterprise environment? So I go and talk about those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. and, it, and it was really fascinating because at the time, Macworld had these big conferences and that's where Steve Jobs would do his announce the new products. Okay, yeah. You know, it was a great big conference organized by a magazine. Apple just happened to be one of the big, big participants. Yeah. So they would say, well, we'll do our keynotes. Of course, nowadays, Apple do their keynotes behind closed doors. It's invitation <laughs> only. But at the time, being a part of the Macworld faculty, yeah. you got a front row seat. <laughs> so there's me, you know, from Tewkesbury. <laughs> the sort of bedroom programmer, you know, this, and now I'm sat there and this guy comes on stage and goes, ta-da, here's the, you know, iPod shuffle, here's the Mac mini, here's um, garage band, here's all of this. I would just sit there in absolute awe watching this. <laughs> I didn't realize that I would have got that shortcut by speaking through writing and speaking yeah. to actually see events now that when I read you know, behind the scenes, Apple business books are now points in, in you know, technology history. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, it, it was it was really really fascinating and interesting work to do. But the so the idea of the getting the speaking gigs was probably just because you were interested as well, but also it, it wasn't to get business out in the states, but it was to just say I've been speaking at this. It, event in the states and to sort of give your your business more credibility over here in in Melbourne. A, a, absolutely, it, yeah. it was to try and drive credibility mm -hmm. um, that actually, if these people have pseudo endorsed 
our content or what we're talking about, mm. it gave you a, a differentiator. Yeah. Because a lot of the sort of professional services at that time would be done by a value-added reseller. So they would almost try and tag it on to selling you a load of equipment. Right, okay. Um, and my ethos was actually the money wasn't in selling the equipment, the money was in the service, was actually in the value, is stitching right. all of this together to make it work, okay. to actually help it align with whatever your business processes were, mm -hmm. whatever your business value was. Mm -hmm. um, and the best way to show that credibility, I thought, was through speaking and through writing mm -hmm. and what have you. Um, and went that's, from there. That sort of... I, I, I'm probably completely wrong, but I always think of that approach as being quite sort of, you know, modern in the last, you know, not that 2001 isn't modern, but, you know, quite recent, that kind of, you know, credibility in terms of, uh, you know, sort of content marketing and writing those articles and doing the speaking gigs and everything. But it seems like, like you, like when I said earlier, you're ahead of the game a little bit. It sounds like <laughs> probably were, well, I don't <laughs> possibly know. were. I mean, where did you... What, what kind of gave you the inspiration to start doing that? Well, if I go back to when I was sort of working with people like Zukan and being a product manager and a product marketing manager, you would actually talk to the magazines, the industry mm -hmm. trade papers, who were always saying, would you give us some content? Have you got somebody in your organization who could give us some content? And we could do, you know, if you give us an article we'll put an advert in the in the magazine for you for right, free. Right, okay, yeah. So it was kind of, you learned that by being involved in marketing. Mm -hmm. And it was this awareness that, again, the magazines that, I wouldn't say they were short of content, but they wanted content mm -hmm. from industry experts per se and what have you. So it was just a sort of, having been immersed in that for a handful of years, when I started my own consultancy business, you thought, well, I haven't got a huge amount of money you can just throw at marketing. So it's a cost-effective way of doing it. Yeah, yeah. I'll do some scribbles, and if it's okay and they like it, then great. Yeah, yeah. Okay. You know, um, so it, it just sort of naturally came from that. Okay, okay, cool. So that was, you said that you ran that business for eight or nine years. Was that just you, or did that grow? Or? It, it grew. At one point, there was sort of half a dozen of us. Oh, right, okay. Um, and what have you. And... It, it was it was great, you know. Yeah. Um, we had sales, we had admin, we had a couple of us doing the tech. I would do a lot of the tech and some of the marketing as well. Mm -hmm. But around, it was probably, you know, the sort of mid-2000s, mid to late 2000s, Apple started to change. And because right. a lot of our business was based on Apple equipment, mm. and we'd actually got to a point where Apple had a professional services team Right. And they would outsource some of the work to us, which was great. But if you, it, it seems obvious now, I mean, Apple have got these retail stores everywhere. Yeah. At the time, they were just pushing into that retail market. Right. And what they decided to do was actually the professional services will pull into the stores. We'll have business teams and one okay, thing or another. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of the value-added resellers at the time, again, who would develop partnerships with, because if you were reselling computers, we could do some services that help you sell more computers. So we had these sort of agreements with, with the hardware resellers. Mm -hmm. The market changed and mm. Apple started to understandably want to own the entire ecosystem. Yeah. So you started seeing value-added resellers disappear. 
you started actually seeing Apple Pro Services saying, well, we're doing it all in-house now. Mm -hmm. So the business did start to wane slightly. Mm -hmm. And it was like, shall we now find a niche product? Shall we actually become, you know, Adobe experts? Or shall we become, you know, X, Y, you know, data Mm -hmm. management experts? But it just waned, really. Um, at, At the time... Um, I was going through a, a difficult divorce as well, right. and there was just a natural having to close the business down. Yeah, really, yeah. it was great while it lasted. Learned a lot, met some amazing people, yeah. saw behind the scenes at some wonderful, wonderful companies. And like I said, you know, it it got me to MacWorld. I met Steve Jobs briefly yeah. once, which was both the most exciting and most disappointing experience. Really? <laughs> <laughs> well. <laughs> You know he's, you know he's he's one of these sort of historic figures, and you see him perform on stage and and what have you. And what would happen is when he'd finished his keynote, he'd go off stage. People would leave the auditorium, but a few people would stay behind. Right. He'd come back on, and these could be friendly journalists, colleagues of his at Apple. Yeah. And I clocked onto this, so I <laughs> would wait behind. And he'd come down and he'd talk to people. And I thought, I, I could meet Steve Jobs at this point. And you think, I've read about this guy for since I was tight. <laughs> you know, he's just in, introduced this groundbreaking product, right? Steal yourself, Stu. And you sort of get through the crowd and eventually he sort of walked towards you. And he had this most amazing gaze on him. Right. That he would just look at you and look straight through you almost into your soul, right. whether he was sizing you up, I don't know what it was. Yeah. I reached out my hand thinking, I've got to say something, I've got to say something profound here, <laughs> something really, really, reached out my hand and I said, hi, Steve. And he said, hi, and shook my hand. And I completely crumbled and I just went, that was great. <laughs> and he went, thanks and moved swiftly on. So my, <laughs> my, my one opportunity, I managed to nause it up completely, but. Ah, that's understandable. But it was interesting <laughs> because again, at the time, the people hanging around, I take, I had my then, you know, very rudimentary digital camera. You take photos and you go, well, that's Johnny Ive. You know, <laughs> this was, you know, got a photo of, you know, Johnny Ive and Steve Jobs together. This is John Lasseter who was, head of Pixar at the time Mm. you know there was Al Gore all of these people in Apple's inner circle and there was this bloke from Tewkesbury loitering (laughs) around on the periphery so it it was great it was great so I enjoyed doing the consultancy but you know things changed so when you when you wound that up um was that kind of almost I know you're saying it, it sort of that the business waned and everything but was there sort of like a decision where you were like right you know, tomorrow yeah. I've got to tell everyone and it, it, that's it kind yeah, of thing. It, it was very much like, look, guys, we've, you know, the game's up. We were trying to develop recurring revenue models, you yeah. know, support models, manage services, but the market wasn't mature enough mm. for that sort mm. of thing at the time. You know, it was mature enough in sort of enterprise IT, you know, the Windows world, as it were, but in the Apple world at the time, it, it just wasn't. So, yeah, there was a day where it was like, we're going to shutter the company, mm, close mm. it down, hand the keys of the office back to the landlord and go our separate ways. Right, yeah, um, yeah. Like I said, it, it, it culminated around just 
relatively difficult time personally. Right. And you just went, okay, well, we'll, yeah. we'll move on mm. and what have mm. you. Um, and, that, and that's what I did. I, uh, fortunately, um, I kept a couple of clients and did some freelance work for a while. Okay. Um, and then um, a, a former colleague emailed me and said, hey, um, have you seen that there's a massive school posh independent school in your hometown who needs a head of IT and they're max through and through. Right. So this was, this was Malvern College, right, a okay. big independent school. So I got in touch, applied and uh, for a few years became their head of IT. Okay. Um, and they were at the time, they'd had home hobbyists looking after the school's right, IT. Okay. And the then bursar, a great chap um, called Ian said to me, look, I'll give you three years. Can you just sort this out? Mm. And I said, what do you mean? Sort it out. He said, sort it out. <laughs> so it was a great opportunity and we rewired the whole campus. We had to build a small data center. You had to introduce a help desk, had to build service right. levels, had to look at licensing, had to get rid of old computers. You had to start building in life cycle management. Because although it's a school, you know, it's it's got a on-campus population of twelve hundred people. Mm. It's hundreds mm. of acres of land. It's thirty-something <laughs> buildings. It's multiple academic departments, operational departments, commercial departments. It's like a a village. So I was going to say, itself. yeah, it's like a small town, isn't it? <laughs> and of course, everybody had a had a viewpoint on IT. Yeah. It needs to be this, and because it had not been invested in properly really or correctly there was a huge built-up frustration right about making it work right so rolled your sleeves up built the team had to lose a few members of the team brought in contractors and sort of did that um and it was a great it was a great thing to do flexed my apple muscles um completely and we got it to a point where they had a change of management modern college they decided they wanted to maybe look at outsourcing, changing, and there was a natural opportunity to say, actually, after being here, I've kind of got it to the level that I wanted to. Mm. And it was another opportunity then to move on. But I always look at the college with sort of very favorable eyes, thinking, all right, I know where that bit of cable is. Or, (laughs) you know, that that dark, (laughs) blustery night when we had to do this and that. So it was was, was a nice spot. So... That, that that was sort of the I won't say the end, but that was the time that you went. It's it's a natural career so, break, really. Okay, and did, uh, so when was this? So twenty ten ish was it? Or something? Uh, it was. It would be later. It was um, twenty thirteen, twenty fourteen. Okay, that came out of that, and that's when I got. I uh, started writing. Okay. okay. Um, it was this sort of natural, maybe natural progression that you went. I always, when I had the consultancy film, I really enjoyed the research and the writing and mm-hmm. interviewing people. I liked writing for the magazines. It was this strange sense of, I don't know, accomplishment. Mm-hmm. And you thought, well, actually, from home hobbyist through RSRE, through circuit design, through Silicon Valley, through Apple, through consulting, I felt I'd got enough background now to actually mm. write about the wider world of tech. Yeah. So I took some time off and started a few blogs and emailed a few people and just started writing about tech. 
okay. um, as a freelancer. Yeah. Um, would pick up a few contracts here. I did a bit for on cybersecurity. You mm. do a bit on um, oh, what do they call it? Um, date, um, digital forensics. Mm. I did, um, and it was it was it was really good. They wanted content. Yeah. You know, maybe content marketing was starting to mature. <laughs> that they wanted people who could write you've been could, doing it for years <laughs> yeah I, unbeknown to me um so i so i did that i yeah. then um then you know took some full-time work with a couple of um big tech companies and would work on case studies and business references and testimonials and thought leadership articles right i would go off and meet a tech company's customer so you got to see again behind the scenes of amazing companies like you know, Manchester Airport or Mighty, the facilities management mm-hmm. people or United Utilities. Or I went to um, a defense contractor and saw how missiles are manufactured. Right, and things yeah. like that. So I started doing all of that and then would also like ghostwrite for execs, you know, right. on, a, on the front of a brochure that might be going in for a, a tender a senior exec, a head of innovation would want a piece. Yeah. I'd have a half hour chat with them and then I would write it for them. And we had to write about, you know, the future of retail, you know, yeah. the future yeah. of robotics or virtual assistants. So I managed to get this even wider viewpoint mm-hmm. on on technology. And it's it's been great. I've really, really enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and it it's I joke, but it's kind of like a you know, 2014 started writing, and I I joke about well I've not gone back to a proper job <laughs> because again it's when somebody says will you speak to this company this sales guy or this technologist yeah. or what have you it's it's terrific yeah. it's really yeah. really good yeah. so so yeah that's what's got me from there to now wanting to set up Hourglass. Okay, so uh, so there you just that was you were just freelancing basically, you know, website and that kind of thing, just yeah, word of mouth and referrals. Pretty much, um, yeah. I did um, I did a few years with a big IT services um, company, a, a wonderful company called SCC, mm-hmm. who's it's by their own admission they're one of these companies that very few people have heard about. Yeah, but they are you know billion pounds a year turnover based in yeah. Birmingham. You know, an amazing sales team of 600 plus people. But what they do is, you know, when the NHS wants a thousand laptops put in, or if Manchester Airport want a whole new back office IT system, they talk to SCC or one of SCC's competitors. And they will say, we'll take this equipment from Dell, we'll take this from Cisco, Mm. we'll take this from Microsoft. And they will build these huge, huge, great installations. fascinating company um, yeah. so I worked for them um, and with them um, for a number of years and still have great relations and contacts with them yeah yeah um, on my view so it has been a combination of both freelance and full-time or you know um, part-time contracts yeah got you okay. um, but have now got to this point with hourglass where there are companies who want libraries of case studies mm-hmm. of business references of testimonials because they have huge sales teams mm-hmm. who want to pull on this material mm-hmm. and marketing you know the internal marketing um, teams of these companies are brilliant i wouldn't have a word said against them 
but they can be focused on the today, on the tactical. We've got this new brochure coming out. We've got this event coming up. We need to get this out on social media and what have you. Building libraries of content is more strategic. Mm -hmm. And it's a case of, right, we want 100 case studies done over the next 12 or 18 months. Okay. Right, go off and research it. Interview the people. Write it up. Get it signed off. Get it legally checked. Get it approved. Mm. And get it up on the platform so we can now start pulling on it. But also build the metadata of what technology, which industry, who the competitors were, et cetera, et cetera. And they want it for multiple use cases inside of a business that mm. sales guys need to pull on it because they want to go in and actually show credibility, show referenceability. Mm. We've done this before. If you're going to spend millions on a new IT system, we've got your back mm -hmm. and we've got the services and the support to help you. Marketing want to put it on the website to garner industry awards, to attract new employees, mm. again, to show this is what we actually do. Mm. But then also you'll get, you know, the guys who are hunting down new business development and they want to be able to show trends of innovation that we can align tech with your business, that you'll get a return on investment, that you'll get, you know, you will attract new customers because of your agile use of technology. Mm -hmm. So now the whole idea of Hourglass is to say, we're not just trying to write one case study, we're trying to build a library of case studies for all of your internal use cases. Right, okay. okay. Um, and also another internal use case is when they are doing tender responses, there's a, a, a bid response team who need a reference that is will stand up to external scrutiny mm. that is not written in a creative or narrative way, but in a very, very dry, this is what we did, this was the response, this is how much it cost, and what have you. So Hourglass is all about offering those kind of technology writing services to those big sort of resellers and channel partners accordingly. Right, okay, okay. Um, so yeah, that's and I'm I'm currently talking to a, a, a number of customers who are going. That's what we want, right? And not only to have it researched and written and published, but case studies go out of date quite quickly. Okay, they have a lifespan of probably, you know, twelve months yeah. at the most. So once you've got that library, there's a maintenance, there's a management piece mm -hmm. that you've got to say. It's up for renewal. Mm. Do we renew it? Go out and see what's changed? Do we retire it? Or is it okay to leave it as it is? Mm. Mm. Because again, from a content marketing point of view, you've got to create it, but you need to maintain it. Yeah, or yeah, yeah. it withers and dies. Um, so again, that's part of the offering from Hourglass. Cool. So it's almost like a, a opportunity for some kind of database as well on your side that keeps track of it all and uh, for, oh. for each company. Oh, absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm knee deep in the moment at talking to, you know, <laughs> SharePoint experts to develop a platform so that, again, you know, a big IT reseller, um, their sales guys can log in and then go, I need something about artificial intelligence in, in healthcare or I need mm. something on encryption in financial services because they want to then pull down those, that material mm -hmm. to use in pitch decks, to use at conferences or events. Mm -hmm. But those sales teams want to know or have confidence 
it's up to date mm. it's fact checked it's approved it's legally checked yeah. they just want to be able to take it and run yeah but that requires a huge amount of maintenance and updates mm. in the background so yeah the plan is you know work with these first few customers but then develop a platform and provide the maintenance services nice because again the marketing internal marketing teams then also have got a huge bank of content that they can pull on mm. Mm. you know and not just the case studies but the testimonials who's quoted what can we use da, da, da. so they have a confidence to go out and, and use it as well mm. so mm. that's really the offering Interesting. Um, and for the last 12 months i've been out talking to people about how would this work what do you need yeah um, and, and building it into in, in, into the business right interesting exciting times it is um and of course you know the first few customers i'm talking with as well they go well once we've got 25 case studies they've also got 25 or more people that we've interviewed that mm. have now become advocates yeah. you go once we've got that to critical mass what we've collectively learned can now help us create real thought leadership mm-hmm. and we can actually go out to these advocates and not just do it internally but say to them what's your view on ai displacing workforce what's your view on the morals of you know um, data privacy and what have you yeah. so again once you get your case studies to critical mass you can now start yeah. developing essentially what you'd call original content yeah yeah that again you know these tech companies really really can benefit from yeah yeah interesting it's it's all come together over the years like even you know i was thinking at the beginning about your love of the magazines and everything i'm sure all of that reading that you did as a teenager must be really influencing what you're doing well it does because i think it, it's interesting, you know, there's, there's the first ever copy of Wired magazine just here on the table from you yeah. know, the 1990s. But they were essentially creating thought leadership content before it was called thought leadership yeah. content. <laughs> yeah. So again, I've been immersed in this and maybe it's just felt natural to me. But even now, you know, I, I buy magazines every month, business yeah. mags. I'm constantly buying, you know, the business biographies, what's happened behind the scenes at Facebook, behind Amazon, what's happening, you know, in, in artificial intelligence or robotics or stuff mm. like that, just because there's this amazing content out there. And I still believe it's so much easier to read it in a magazine or a book than it is on screen. Yeah. You know, I love social media. And I, I love what it's brought for us. But long form content is still much, much better, you know, written and printed. I'm kind of surprised to hear you say that, actually, because I would have thought you'd be, you know, more in, into the screens. And you see, I, I I'm kind of surprised and kind of excited and, and equal measure. <laughs> well, I think, you know, what, what magazines do and what newspapers do is they do a curation for you. Yeah. So, again, if you, you, know, you could pick up the latest copy of, of Wired or Monocle or a magazine and they will they've researched it they've done the legal and the fact checking and what have you but sometimes they take you on a journey that you weren't expecting yeah and like i said you know back when i would read sinclair user you could be looking at oh here's a hack a hardware hack to do but then there'd be somebody talking about using databases in business it took you on this Mm. journey that i think with 
what you look on on screen and i i enjoy doing that but it can become very very focused mm-hmm. you know I, i'm i'm very curatorial over my social media from the point of view that it's brilliant because i can read what the wall street journal is saying or the san francisco mm-hmm. chronicle or you can pick up you can create your own media feed mm. that gives you a sort of wider viewpoint on mm. things mm. but I rarely sit down and would actually read a 3,000 word article on screen. I just yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. I'm the same. It's sort of, I don't know what it is about it. It, it just, it seems harder to take in and yeah. harder to have the patience to sit there uh, and, and read it on a screen compared to Yeah, printer. and it was, it was interesting. You know, I, I've got a great relationship with DRPG, you know, mm. a media um, comms and events business over in Worcestershire. And at one of their events last week, they were saying how many of their clients now are asking for longer form content, mm. be it written, be it video. The mm. people now are kind of going, right, the TikTok and the Instagram has its place and it's not going to go away, but it's in those micro moments. But then yeah. people want longer form content to reflect on and what mm. have you. So, yeah, it's um, yeah. That, that's where we're heading. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's been an interesting journey. Cool, yeah, yeah. And it sounds like he's just at the beginning of a new one as well, really. So <laughs> it, it is, and I think, um, I think it would be really nice as well for the tech companies to get to a point where, if you ever look at an architectural practice, and I'm, you know, a big architectural practice, and I've been fortunate to meet a couple in mm. the past. You know, if you take a you know, Foster and Partners in London or Make, who... I'm a big fan of who are based in London as well. They've always been very good at creating monographs, basically books of their own case studies, mm-hmm. how they designed this building, the thought that went into it, how it's constructed, mm. how it you know meets all the criteria, how it's helping cut down on climate change. And they put these things in beautiful books. It would be lovely to see the tech world get to that point now i know that they will talk about oh tech moves really quickly it's really transient but actually if you go back and read some vintage tech it's really really fascinating Mm. you know this Mm. like i said i brought this book um from apple called Mm. 10 years of a vision after their first 10 years in business they published a book about it what they'd learned and i think that there's a real opportunity for some of these big tech companies all the channel partners Mm. to start creating longer form in-depth monographs because if you've shown how you can implement ai in this business we could go Mm. somewhere else it could go Mm. somewhere else so i think it would be nice to see them evolve into that space at some point interesting yeah it's funny we'll talk after this because i've been having thoughts along (laughs) very similar lines recently and got some ideas so uh, yeah yeah that's uh that's very interesting to hear well And, and it would be really nice as well i think with going back to the hourglass and case studies so much of it is done retrospectively yeah it would be nice to get to a point that again referencing architecture Mm. that they write their case studies as the project is progressing Mm. Mm. and you get a much better narrative a much better Mm. story you get Mm. when it didn't go well or it did go well or somebody left or there was that last minute change and what have you so again it would be nice as Hourglass evolves and helps its clients to say, let's embed us into your project teams Mm -hmm. that we can watch this evolve 
mm. get the quotes. So when it's completed and signed off, you've got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. again, some of these nice. projects take two years to come to completion. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. if you ask anybody two and a bit years, how did you get this business? Oh, I can't remember. Mm. So hopefully we'll evolve into that space as well. Nice, nice. Well, we've smashed through an hour and 10 minutes. Oh, have we? Oh, gosh. <laughs> Would you believe it? It's been, no, it's been excellent. Um, hourglass.inc with a K yep. is the place to, to come find out more. And you're on LinkedIn I am. as well. So Stuart Wilkes on LinkedIn. That's it. You can we'll, find me there. We'll put those in the show notes so people can uh, come and chat to you about the case study needs. And, uh, and and see see what you're up to because uh, yeah sounds like it's going to be exciting lovely thanks very much Dan thanks so much you've been listening to the Thriving Three Counties podcast with me Dan Barker you can find links to all the episodes and show notes over at danbarkerstudios.com forward slash podcast if you've enjoyed today's show please head over to iTunes and leave us a review it helps other people find the show and connect more people in the region Thank you very much for your time listening. I hope you've enjoyed it and we'll see you next time.